Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get over right now to... Dana Peterson um, to help us assess what's going on here in uh, in the economy. Dana is uh, chief economist and center leader of the economy at the conference board. And, um, you know, it's the consumer that makes not just a huge difference in terms of spending right now, but in terms of so many uh, other things, including returning to the workforce, as, as we um, have seen highlighted by today's jobs report. Dana, what's the um, state of the consumer's health and not just, you know, financially, but in terms of um, getting back out there look like to you? Yes. I mean, our last uh, survey of consumer confidence for November showed that there was a dip in confidence overall. And when we asked consumers, you know, what's the problem, they cited two things. First, inflation. And the second was COVID. And certainly when we look at the number of, of Delta variant and COVID cases overall in November, they were still pretty elevated, even though they were not as bad as, say, late August, early September. Um, and I think we saw that in today's report, where you saw just 210 uh, in terms of uh, total payroll gains and very little gains in terms of leisure and hospitality and even some other uh, sectors um, in services had negative readings. So if consumers are still not uh, feeling safe and want to get out there and engage in these services that you have to uh, enjoy outside of the home, then that's certainly going to affect, uh, affect how many people uh, employers are going to hire. It's been interesting to watch wage growth but then an uptick in inflation as well. The last print in inflation was about 6%. And I'm curious how you're thinking about the relatively strong wage growth that we got in this report, though if it's not keeping up with a 6% inflation rate, real wages are still negative. How do you view these wage numbers? Sure. I, I think the, the wage numbers increasing, you know, 4.8% year on year, um, is really telling of the continued labor shortages we're, we're seeing. And certainly some industries are worse than others. So if you look at uh, retail, I'm sorry, if you look at leisure and hospitality, wages were up almost 13% year on year. Um, and also transportation, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, it's transportation and also warehousing, uh, those prices were up more than 6% year on year. So certain areas, certainly those areas that are seeing the most acute labor shortages, again, those uh, sectors that need people to physically be at work, we're seeing much higher wage increases uh, relative to overall. In terms of the participation rate, Janet Yellen, a couple of days ago in her testimony, said she thinks it's all about COVID, that people are afraid to come back in. Goldman Sachs, I think, put out a report uh, a couple of weeks ago, though, saying it's really about um, returns because people have made so much money in the markets that uh, those close to retirement have decided they could go ahead and do it. How do you see it? Well, I think it's a combination of, of both, uh, plus other things. So certainly many people have retired early, either because they were afraid of getting sick or because their 401k plans really exploded. And they said, look, we feel financially safe. We can go ahead and retire. And many of those people are probably not going to return uh, to the labor market. Certainly many people are still afraid of getting sick. 
Um, certainly, again, looking at the consumer confidence data, uh, fear of the virus is still very real. But you also have other factors. So, for example, travel bans are still in place. So that means that labor from abroad really isn't able to come in and fill in some of those spots. You still have lingering childcare issues, which are especially acute for uh, women with uh, working women with children. And so potentially the participation rate may not return to the level that we saw before the pandemic. So that suggests that maybe we're closer to full employment uh, than the participation rate is signaling. How does this Federal Reserve respond? I would argue that maybe we heard sort of a different tone out of Jay Powell this week. Uh, what does this mean for a Fed meeting and on December 15th? Well, I, I think, you know, when looking at this employment report, it was mixed. On the one hand, payrolls were pretty pathetic. But um, on the household survey, we saw some good numbers there. Unemployment rate uh, continued to fall. And certainly when you look at unemployment rates for different demographic groups, they're not as bad as they used to be. Um, also, if you again, getting back to the participation rate and reasons for why you're not going to see some people come back, then you can say that, look, we're getting close to the full employment. Maybe in some areas we've actually reached it. But we also have to be very concerned about inflation. Look at wages rising as acutely as they are. Businesses are most likely passing some of those wage costs and other input costs uh, down to consumers. It's showing up in consumer inflation. And if you're the Fed, you have to also be concerned not just about how many people are working, but their, their buying power. And certainly their buying power is eroded if prices are rising, especially for necessities like food, uh, energy, and shelter. Dana, you think, do you think that the Fed is going to be able to raise, raise wages – sorry, what am I talking about? Raise rates um, without hurting economic growth? I mean, we're only at – you know, if they raise twice, 50 to 75 basis points. Absolutely. I think that they can raise – as you said, if they raise interest rates two or three times, you still have very low interest rates, still very accommodative. And let's – Let's think about what growth may look like next year, anywhere from 3 to 4%, depending upon what you have in there in terms of additional fiscal stimulus and also effects from higher inflation. So 3% is still very strong, especially when a potential GDP is probably closer to 2%. So you have that perfect backdrop for the Fed, relatively strong growth, meaning well above trend, at least one, one to two percentage points above trend, um, elevated prices, rising inflation expectations, and also an employment backdrop that's significantly better. Indeed, when you look at the number of missing persons from payrolls, you're around 3 million compared to 22 million back in February, March of last year. So we've come a long way. Is that what I mean, a flattening yield curve on the twos tens? We're now below 80 basis points, and you could argue maybe – 80 basis points feels low. It's the flattest that we've had since pre-pandemic. And it's also the rate of change at which we've gotten to 80 basis points. What is that flattening of the yield curve telling you about a pull forward of some of these rate hike expectations? Well, I think markets are, are, are kind of confused a little bit. Um, on the one hand, you do have the stronger signaling from the Fed, uh, certainly during the testimony from uh, the chair. Uh, he said, let's get rid of that word transitory and think more about the fact that some of these inflation uh, elements are 
potentially a little bit more persistent, given the fact that the pandemic is persisting. And there may be some other things that uh, even after the pandemic may linger, such as high wages. And also, uh, meanwhile, you have the Omicron variant cropping up. And we know that the Delta variant has and is continuing to affect economic activity. So I would imagine markets probably don't know which way to go on this. But again, looking ahead to next year, um, in the springtime or mid-year, the conditions are probably going to be ripe, uh, among the things that I've already mentioned, for the Fed to go ahead and start uh, raising interest rates a little bit. I, I want to ask a question that I know you don't want to be political. No economist wants to be political unless you're Paul Krugman or Brian Westbury. But build back better. Does that kind of spending add to inflation or um, does it help us avoid inflation or is it a question of your time span? I think a lot of it, it it's a combination of what's in the bill, which we, we do know, um, and certainly it's already been scored by the CBO, and the timing of when the outlays happen. And certainly um, I think the outlays are meant to be accelerated across the 10-year period or however long the period is. And so that means that you would have stronger growth potentially next year and, and, and also in the year after. And so that means that you also may have stronger demand, um, certainly for, for businesses that are, uh, you know, certainly investing such that they can meet the demands uh, required by the bill. Um, and so that means higher prices and certainly um, potentially higher prices for consumers as well. So taking together stronger growth, somewhat stronger inflation. And so, again, that provides additional space or a reason for the Fed to go ahead and begin raising interest rates from zero. It's interesting. I do wonder, you know, what do you think about sort of this intersection of increase in fiscal and monetary stimulus? I think we knew post-financial crisis, there was a lot of pressure to do monetary stimulus because we didn't have the fiscal stimulus. This time around, actually, you could argue that the fiscal side has really been front and center along with monetary policy. Does that sort of also give the Fed officials room to pull back because, as Matt was saying, this massive fiscal stimulus that is coming? Well, I think... um you're right. We had lots of fiscal, copious amounts of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus amid the pandemic. And and certainly when we look at the drivers of inflation, all that is not linked to the Fed's low uh, interest rates or quantitative easing. Some of it is linked to the very strong demand for goods um, and services you can consume at home from fiscal stimulus checks. But still in all, uh, the Fed is looked to to manage the economy and the financial system. And certainly the Fed can help cool off some of the, 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 <laughs> the heat that we're seeing in the economy and certainly in, a, in, an, in inflation uh, by raising interest rates. So again, you know, we have two very powerful policy impulses and certainly the Fed can pull back on its uh, policy impulses consistent with its dual mandate. All right, Dana, thanks so much. Great to get your insight today. It's been a truly fascinating, I mean, the last couple of years have been clearly unprecedented, but we've had an amazing week as well in terms of trading. Dana Peterson, chief economist and center leader of economy um, strategy and finance at the conference board. 
Let's get over uh, right now and talk um, in a more in-depth way about uh, the jobs number right now. Joni Biley joins us right now, Chief Workforce Analyst at EmployBridge. And Joni, you know, the president is going to come out and say, uh, yeah, it was a two... Uh, it, it was a 250,000, 260,000 miss, but um, the unemployment number has fallen to 4.2%. Even experts didn't anticipate that. Um, are we in a good place as far as unemployment's concerned? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, great to be with you this morning. And I can tell you this jobs report, um, it does have a little bit of a mixed message because you're right, that headline number was not that strong. We were expecting a number of 550,000 jobs created and only saw 210,000 jobs created for the month of November. So that was a disappointment. However, there is a lot of good news in this report. When you look at the overall labor force, um, we saw that almost 600,000 people entered back into the labor force which was a really good sign. We have 162 million people that are participating in the labor force compared to November last year, it was 160 million. Um, and even better is that we're seeing the number of employed people expand as well. Um, that was over 1.1 million people added in the month of November. So we now have 155 million people working and that's what's really driving down that unemployment rate. So um, there is a lot of good news in this report as well, though, you know, I wouldn't be surprised maybe if next month, maybe they revise the numbers and it's a little bit better and we see a little bit more job creation. But um, I, I was surprised that the, that the overall job creation number was only 221. And you bring up a good point. Talk to us about the revisions, because we've seen a lot of those in the past reports. Is there something um, changing or different about the way the payrolls report is, is calculated? I mean, I've heard a lot of people starting their own businesses and job formation and, and you know, new sort of um, employer creation, and it's sort of changing the way that we should be looking at a traditional payrolls report. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's very interesting because then you can en also enter into the gig economy um, and, and see, you know, how many people are participating in that and actually working and is that being calculated um, correctly. But I could tell you from a revision standpoint, you know, um, it, it, nothing has really changed in the way they're calculating it. We, we see every month, um, the first Friday of the month, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out the report, they will also revise the last or the previous two months. And, you know, the past few months, we have seen upward revisions. Um, this month in November, they actually revised September and October up, and it was an additional 87,000 jobs created in those months. So the reports were actually even better. And I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised if we see that, you know, next month when we look at the December jobs report, um, maybe November will get revised upward and we'll, we will see a stronger number. Um, but overall, there, you know, the, the sectors, if you really kind of break it down and look at where the jobs were created, 
um, it was kind of interesting. We did not see uh, strong job growth in leisure and hospitality. Only 23,000 jobs were created in that sector, and that was expected to perform much stronger since we've seen people start to travel again. Um, I don't know about all of you, but, you know, just being in an airport lately, the flights are packed, the airports are packed, uh, restaurants certainly um, are, you know, um, at full capacity. So uh, surprised we didn't see a stronger number there. But uh, there was good job growth in construction and manufacturing. Both sectors added 31,000. Uh, we're also seeing trade and transportation um, at about 50,000. It was a little over 49,000 jobs created in that sector. So I think it really speaks mm. to our economy right now and the demand and supply chain. Um, there's a lot of jobs available, and we're, yes. we're adding people back in those sectors. I mean, there are a ton of jobs. We, we focus so much on the people that haven't come back into the labor force because the participation rate is uh, has historically been so important. Um, but there are so many openings there, and uh, your company, EmployBridge, is widely recognized as the biggest industrial staffing firm in America. Where, where do you see... Uh, the most need right now, and how difficult is it for you to fill those positions? Yes, so at EmployBridge, we have organized ourselves really by brand. So we have a division called Pro Drivers, and they place um, CDL drivers and also non-CDL drivers. Um, there is it's my such dream job, a strong demand, yes, right now for, for drivers. So that is an area um, that we're seeing pay rates significantly up. They're up 18% year over year. And we have tons of job openings. In fact, we could, I was talking to the president of that division yesterday. He said we could double in size if we could just find more people. Well, so and, by, by the way, I don't want to get too far off on this tangent because I've always wanted to be a truck driver, long haul <laughs> truck driver. Do it, but, Matt. Well, What's no, stopping I've, you? I've, I've, looked, I've looked into there. it, though. Uh, I've, I've been reading a lot more about it lately. And not only is it, A, incredibly difficult, you know, just to do, to operate these big rigs, um, and you want to operate them safely, so you need experience, but it's it's not easy to get licensed either. I mean, how uh, how difficult is it for someone who whose, you know, biggest truck experience is like an F-150 to be driving an 18-wheeler across America? Well, there's, you know, great training programs and schools to teach them. So if they're, they have to be 21 years old um, and um, have the, a clean, I... clean driving record, um, but there's great opportunities. And many companies are, you know, offering to pay for the training uh, to help them, you know, and, and get them, you know, put them to work. So lots of opportunities in that area. Interesting. Is it happening fast enough, though? I mean, overall, too, across sectors, where where are all the workers? What is not in? I mean, the, are the pay increases that we've seen not enough to bring workers back? Well, that is such a great question, um, and I think everyone's kind of scratching their head. You know, it's it's probably a combination of things because certainly COVID um, impacted. Many families, we saw, you know, women drop out of the workforce that had to stay home and maybe help their children with online schooling. Um, we've also seen that 
you know, the impact of COVID has maybe made people reevaluate, you know, are we going to have two, you know, working, you know, parents, or maybe one's yes. going to stay home. People are reevaluating themselves. So that certainly has been an impact. Safety, health and safety is still a factor. Um, but, you know, when I look at labor participation and you break it down, I'm, I'm more concerned that we don't see enough women actually participating in the workforce. So I think employers are going to have to think differently about how they, entra- you know, attract women to the workforce, whether it's more flexibility, yeah. more work from home opportunities. Um, there's an opportunity to increase labor participation if someone could kind of crack the code on figuring out how to make it more attractive for women to come back. Into oh, I have a great idea. What if what if major employers also had uh, daycare and preschool? Yeah, the major employers, I mean, it is something, you know, to think about. For a while, I, I felt like we were headed down, you know, that track. And you really don't hear that as much today, partly because of COVID. You know, many um, employers have moved the professional jobs and said, you know, you can work remotely or have a hybrid schedule. Um, but that is something the major employers where they have all, you know, all of their employees at big locations, um, that would be a great, great benefit to offer employees. So I don't want to get, again, I don't want to get political and I've been flamed lately for being a bleeding heart Mm. liberal. Can you believe that on, on social media? Um, do you think build back better if passed in its current state would help to increase, to get women back into the labor force? Oh gosh, that is a loaded question. Um, okay, I didn't mean so, to. I, I didn't mean for it to be that way. I really don't. No, no. I think you know. I'm. Not, I have to be honest that I'm not sure that that is the answer. I think we do need programs, absolutely, that support women, um, that support families, um, and you know, offer training and opportunities to get people back. To back to work. My concern would be too much social assistance is not going to help get people back to work. I, and, and there's got to be a balance. So that's why I say that's a loaded question. There needs to be a balance. We definitely well, I think it's a great answer. With, Are you, you're, you know, <laughs> you, you could be an economist. <laughs> well, I can say it's, I see it more so on the front lines with workers when we were, you know, when our country was offering all of the supplemental insurance for the unemployment benefits, you know, we had many people that we would call and say, we have a great job for you. And they, they would say, well, I'm actually making more money on unemployment right now. And so why would I risk going to work? And so that, that's always a, a topic that's debated. But I could tell you firsthand that this was a real issue that we dealt with for a while. And now that that's kind of run its course and those benefits did go away in the beginning of September, but it, it took a while for us to kind of get back and get people participating in the workforce. Um, and I can tell you right now we're seeing more applications. So, so to, you know, to answer your, your question, I, I think it's a balance. Let's be careful that we don't offer so much social assist, assistance that people don't want to come back to work and don't want to participate. We can't make it too easy. You know, we, our country was built on strong, you know, values and work ethic, and we need people out there working in all sectors. We need them training. We need them learning. 
um, and we need them participating. I'm really passionate about labor participation. We need to get more people participating. Really appreciate your time. What a wide-ranging interview. Joni Bailey, of course, title uh, here, Chief Workforce Analyst at EmployBridge. Let's get over now to Tom Gimble. As I said, he's going to join us from LaSalle Network, uh, leading American staffing firm to talk about the jobs number. We had a big miss, uh, Tom, and... Nonetheless, unemployment came down to 4.2% with the participation rate rising. What's your take? Did we have a big miss? Uh, I, uh, I, I get it that economists want to look and, and predict the future of what everything's going to be. You know, we had a revised uh, for October of 546,000, right? So we're, we're revising the previous month up. We added 210,000 jobs. The participation rate increased and unemployment rate decreased. I don't see how that's a myth. Talk to us then about the reaction within some of the markets. Just for for the record, I get your point, but um, we had a print of 210 and we were looking for 550. So... Well, Tom, dig into us for this a little bit then. I mean, if you're thinking about all the revisions higher, is is that the case here of what we're thinking about, is that we'll get another revision next month for this month and boost the top-line number that, that of course, Matt Matt is referring to? Historically, there there is a percentage of the population that's unemployable. And people don't want to talk about that, and sure as heck politicians don't. That number used to be between two and a half and three percent of the population is unemployable. And whether for whatever reason, they don't want to, they don't have the abilities, there's a, a discrepancy in skill sets versus what's in demand. But there's a certain percentage of the population that isn't a contributing member of the workforce. And what we've got is a situation where every single if we if we remove politics, right? And I'm a centrist, if we remove politics from this equation. And, and Biden and Trump and all this craziness and COVID, what we still have is a small percentage of holdback due to COVID, meaning parents who left the workforce and are still out of the workforce because they need to be home when their kids are sick or if there's COVID. You also have a second percentage of population that people were contemplating leaving the workforce to be stay-at-home parents. And with COVID, they realized how much they actually enjoy being around their kids and they don't want to come back. You can't recreate you can't recreate history. That's just factual. So now what we've got is a more stabilized situation. I know we have the the other variant that's potentially coming through from Africa, um, but we can't worry about that until we have something to worry about in this country. What we have is, as I said earlier, participant participation rate is at the highest level since pre-pandemic. Right. It doesn't get any, it really doesn't get that much better than that. Unemployment dropped. Companies are hiring. Now, 210,000 may be because, give or take, that might be the only available workers to add to the, the situation who want to work. Interesting uh, take, and I get um, your points. What about your, at your business right now, LaSalle Network? Um, how in demand are your services because we see an amazing amount of job openings and how difficult are you finding them to fill? We are up almost 50% over a year ago. Our October itself was up over 57% over a year ago. 
Our temporary staffing, we do all white collar. Our temporary staffing business is we can't find enough people. Our search business is the best it's ever been in 24 years. And internally, we are hi- we've hired over 100 people this year in recruiting and sales roles, and we're adding another 150 next year. Business has never been better, and we do operations in 38 of the, of the continental 48. And is this the wage growth that we are seeing that comes in again pretty strong in this report that is attracting um, some of those people to come back out and and continue to be participating in this labor force is it a wage growth that that you're finally seeing yeah i mean people people want to work when they're paid more there's no doubt about it but i also believe that there was a certain percentage of the population that didn't under you know we want to talk about oh september numbers will be great because the federal unemployment will stop and and people need to get back to work and maybe we just saw a two or three month lag from that number too and that is people just the, 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 until the benefits stop, then people start to look. And then it takes time when they start to look to find a job. And, and then you contribute to the, the, the system here. So just because the benefits ended at the end of August uh, doesn't mean that all of a sudden the September numbers were going to be great. I'm not so sure that we didn't see a lag from the benefits ending. And in addition to increased wages and an increase to people realizing that we are not going to turn into a socialist government and everything is going to be free. And I got to get my head back in the game. Wow. If everything were free. I live under a socialist government here in a sense. Social Democrats. A lot of stuff is free, kind of. But I have to pay half of my income in taxes. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the uh, energy industry right now with the chief executive of EOS Energy Enterprises. Joe Mastrangelo joins us, uh, and we are going to get a little bit into the infrastructure bill and some grants to expand U.S. battery research. First of all, Joe, um, what's your take on what we saw in the infrastructure bill, and how do you think it's going to change the energy industry? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the industry in and of itself, we're at a tipping point right now of really accelerating into more and more um, energy storage, more and more renewables. And I think what you see in the infrastructure bill is going to help us get there. And I also think it's important to think about in the Build Back Better bill as well, there's some great incentives for people to make investments in the standalone energy storage outside of just doing energy storage with solar, which is also going to help us firm up the grid and allow a higher use of renewables. Joe, I think it's so fascinating. I think six months ago, we were all talking about the chip shortage. And I know we're still talking about the chip shortage, but everyone says that a year from now, it is going to be a battery shortage. Do you agree? Depends on the technology, Vi. I think, I think, um, I think the shortage is driven by the demand. I think what we've tried to do is, is position ourselves to be able to scale rapidly with how we've designed both our, our manufacturing process and our supply chain, and we're ready to scale, and we're in the midst of investing in our factory in, in Turtle Creek outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We've added you know, close to 100 jobs, and we're continuing to add manufacturing capacity to go from 
a run rate of around 250 megawatt hours per year to 800 megawatt hours per year by the end of next year. So we're excited to keep building out and just keep working through the challenges and bring great technology to market. Tell us, by the way, uh, for those who don't know, what you do at EOS. The ticker is EOSE, um, but you have a, a long career in working in uh, power at GE from turbo machinery to gas power systems. What do you do now at EOS? Yeah, yeah, man. I've, so I've been in the energy industry for for thirty years. Um, EOS is a is a stationary energy storage company that is uh, based on on zinc bromine technology for its electrolyte that allows you to store and discharge energy um, back, pull energy from the grid and, and discharge it back on the grid. We do this with earth abundant, non toxic, fully recyclable materials and do this in a way that allows extreme operating flexibility. It's, it's, a, it's a great technology whose time has arrived, and it's just very exciting to lead the firm. Can you talk to us, Joe, and I'm thinking big picture here, the sure. shift to renewables and the impact that that has had on gas prices. There have been some concerns that the way in which we're shifting, we're not doing it in a reliable way. What is this sort of ideal shift what does that look like to you yeah so funny i would i would start off and always say that the energy value chain is always going to have a mix of technologies and i believe that there is a mix for gas turbine technology as we move forward as renewables have come on you know the the reality of renewables is the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing so you have these moments of time where either you have too much or you don't have enough and what the industry is now moving towards is to add this stationary storage to allow you to store energy when there's excess and discharge it when there's a need. So it allows those renewable technologies to become a firming resource so that when we flip the switch in our house, the lights come on. And that, that's the key trick here is you want to add more renewables. You need reliable storage in order to do that. It's uh, it's such a fascinating industry, and I think it's going to become more and more important. What do you think in terms of the growth? What's your uh, what's your forecast for the growth of just the energy storage industry? I mean, look, I think it, it depends on it depends on what forecast you look at. I mean, we are in we're in a tremendous growth cycle where you're talking about you know compound average growth rates in the twenty five percent as we look out over the over the next few years. I think a catalyst to accelerate that growth goes back to where we started the conversation with the Build Back Better bill of allowing people to get investment tax credits to bring new technology on that also incentivizes them to take American-made technology. You know, we're a company, the technology was invented in the U.S., 80% of our, of our suppliers are in the U.S., our factories in the U.S., and allowing us to do this is going to allow us to gain energy independence as we look to more green and, and lower carbon solutions. Talk to me more about that. Are we onshoring fast enough? Well, I, I think right now you have, um, you have a lot of companies like ours or other companies. You know, EOS is not, you know, I'd love to tell you that we're going to be the solution. It's going to take a lot of us to be able to do what we need to do because there's a lot of different use cases. So there are other companies out there that are behind us in their commercialization and industrialization path that need to be that push to, to, to be able to, to, to grow into a full-scale manufacturer. I think what we're doing now is going to allow us to do that. The timing is right in the market 
to get other technologies besides lithium ion into the grid and allow us to to bring more renewables on and and, and shore up our supply and demand of power. You've uh, come on at a well, I guess a very volatile time for your stock. It shot up and then came back down to levels we saw before you were chief executive officer. What's going on with the market? Look, I you know. What we control is how we execute, how the, the, the orders that we win and the product that we deliver, and that's what we're focused on every day. As you know, there's a lot of other things that go on around a stock price, but what we've said from the day we've gone public is we just want to show people that we're the company that executes and delivers, and we're going to continue to show that proof, those proof points and show people that we're a great investment for the future in a growing industry with a great technology and now we just have to show our ability to deliver, and that's what we're that's what we're focused on right now at EOS. All right, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Great to uh, hear a little bit more about your company and your industry. Joe Masterangelo, they're the CEO of EOS Energy Enterprises. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.